because we can know God, we can go to him in prayer. Join me now, please. Holy God, your love for us is never ending. We can clearly see your love to us through your generosity. For in love, you have given us life. You have given us a desire to be like you. And this gift comes only from you. You, in your kindness, have given us eyes to see the beauty of you and the beauty of your suffering. For in love, you suffered and have given us a knowledge of you. In your grace, you have allowed us to know you, to know your eternal and saving power, a power that was made visible through your suffering. Father God, we confess that we are not like you. We do not view suffering as a path to being closer to you or like you. We long for ease and comfort. We look for the easy way out and believe that if it's hard, you must not be in it. Forgive us for not remembering that we are called to suffer with you. Forgive us for looking for the easy path. Give us a heart that does not look for ease, but presses into the suffering that you have placed before us in order that we may become like you. This morning, we thank you, Father God, for the deacons of this church. You have given this church a group of individuals who are tasked with serving us, the members, in specific ways. From the office staff who handle the finances and administration to those who serve through setup, teardown, or even member care. We are grateful for those who image you in your service. And this service, Lord, is also a form of suffering. They give of themselves, they give of their time and their talents to care for this body. And Lord, we are grateful for those who have committed to caring for this church. May their service not be for the eyes of man, but out of a deep love for you. And finally, Father, we bring our request to you this morning. We pray for the world that we live in as we are once again confronted with the reality of more sickness as the COVID virus continues to evolve and it's all over the news. Lord, we know that none of the events of this world are outside of your control. Give us wisdom as we live in this world, but above all, give us confidence to walk in obedience to you. May we be a people who are marked by a deep, deep love for you and love for each other. Obedience to you means that we will suffer. May we not run from that suffering, but rely on you, knowing that we, as we obey, your grace is perfected in our lives and cause us to desire you and your people above all that this world has to offer. And Lord, we thank you for what you are doing here in our midst. And as uh, the word is brought to us this morning, we pray that it would bring obedience about in our lives. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nick, for that prayer. Good morning, Mission Fellowship. It's good to be here with you this morning as we conclude our study through the seven micro letters in Revelation. And so I'll invite you to turn there this morning with me to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Revelation 3, 14. Now, I grew up in Monmouth. It's a small town that's not too far from here. And growing up in Monmouth was great. We lived in a neighborhood where we had a couple of our really close friends that lived just a few blocks away. 
And one of my closest friends, he had three brothers, and they lived right around the corner from us. And the four boys in that family were super, super competitive. And every summer, my little brother and I would ride bikes around the neighborhood with them. We would play ping pong and spend time thinking of ways to take competition to the extreme. From no-handed bike races around the block to epic games of wiffle ball that would stretch late into the night, we did it all. But when I was studying the text in Revelation this morning, one particular activity stuck out in my mind. We called it Extreme Spoons. Perhaps many of you have played this particular card game where cards are passed around until one person gets four of a kind, and then there's a race to grab spoons, and like musical chairs, one person is left without a spoon. Now, normally this game would end with a redeal, and we'd laugh and point and make fun of whoever didn't get the spoon, but this was extreme spoons. And so the loser was forced to chug. Now, being the good, mostly rule-following kids that we were, we weren't chugging beer or wine or anything like that. The substance we were chugging was readily available, and it came right from the tap. You see, the loser of Extreme Spoons was forced to chug a tall glass of warm water. Now, there's only so much warm water that a nine-year-old boy can hold in order to best his older brothers before, it just comes back up. So it's no surprise then, as the youngest brother went puking down the hallway, that our game of Extreme Spoons was immediately shut down. You see, the substance that we use to cool ourselves down after all those hot wiffle ball games, the substance that was used to mix with our hot cocoa after we came in from playing football out in the cold, In this case, it was lukewarm, and it was rendered only useful to cause nausea and humiliation on its victim. And as we'll see in the letter to the church in Laodicea, Christ has a stern rebuke for the church. They have taken the gospel, and they have allowed it to get lukewarm. And as a consequence, Christ is ready to vomit them out. So let's read this letter together. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel, uh, oh, jeez, I read the wrong column. 14, not one. There we go. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I've titled today's message, A Word to the Church at Laodicea, Be Zealous and Repent. A Word to the Church at Laodicea, Be Zealous and Repent. We have seen throughout the six other letters that each has a distinct structure, a salutation, a commendation, an exhortation, a warning, and a reward. And while this letter follows a similar structure, you probably noticed as we read through it that it is noticeably missing a commendation, just like the church at Sardis. And this morning I want to spend the bulk of our time on Jesus' exhortation to the church at Laodicea, but we'll touch on the other points as well. So in verse 14, we find the salutation from the faithful and true witness. From the faithful and true witness. I'm going to read verse 14 again. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And here, John is drawing our minds back to the introduction that Jesus gave of himself. And he says in Revelation 1.5, Hans has alluded to it too, but he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So Jesus is just reminding us of who he already said that he was. Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the one who came to represent the Father's character in its fullness and perfection here on earth. He is the one who fulfills all of the prophecies of the anointed king and the faithful servant. He is the one who was with God and was God from before time ever began. And he was the one through whose spirit all things were made that were made. He is the beginning of creation. Not that he was created, but he is the origination of creation. But even more in this greeting, Jesus calls himself the Amen. Now, in our tradition of Christianity, this title could be somewhat confusing. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who grew up thinking that the reason we ended prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen, was because Jesus was a man, not a woman. That's not a joke, by the way. I really thought that. But when we think about the word amen and what it actually means, we can see how powerful the title is. Now imagine with me, you're a member of the early church at Laodicea, and you're thinking, yeah, this is really kind of strange for us to be worshiping this guy who was born in a manger, who was a refugee, who was a blue-collar construction worker by trade, and who was painfully and shamefully executed by the Romans. But then... As if raising from the dead and ascending to heaven wasn't enough, Jesus reminds us that he is the amen. The amen. He is the answer to all of God's promises. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen is shorthand for the truest true. Jesus is the truest truth. All of the times in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
What he's really saying is, amen, amen, I say to you. Like when he says in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Or when he says in John 16, 23, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Jesus is saying you can trust me and put your faith in me because I am truth itself. And when we lift up our prayers this week and we give praise and thanks to God and we ask him for the things we need, I hope that we pause when we end and say amen, realizing that all we need has been given in Christ, the amen himself, and that he is faithful even when we are faithless. And this introduction sets the stage for the hard word that Jesus has for the church. Jesus is reminding the church first and foremost of his faithfulness and of his divine sovereignty. Jesus is reminding the church of who he is and his position as the eternal God of the universe. And he's reminding them that he is the answer to and the giver of all good things. Now we come to the the warning. Just as we saw with the church at Sardis, Christ omits a commendation. And as we'll talk about here in a second, this makes sense given the way the church at Laodicea thought about itself. So the warning is, I will vomit you out. I will vomit you out. And here's what it says in verse 15. <clears throat> I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus tells the church, Hey, I see what's going on here, and it makes me sick. If you've heard this passage preached, perhaps you've heard it presented as a dichotomy between choosing for Christ or choosing against Christ with the metaphor of being hot or cold. But I don't think that's really what Jesus is saying here. You see, Laodicea was uniquely situated in the Near East. It was situated at the crossroads of a very busy trade route, which allowed it to accumulate hordes of wealth. But the one thing it lacked was access to good water. To one side of the city was Colossae, and it got its water from the fresh snow melt streams that ran down the mountainside. This water refreshed the people that lived there. To the other side of the city was a place called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was home to a famous hot spring that people would go and bathe in to provide relief from their aches and their pains. But Laodicea had neither of those. Laodicea was forced to pipe in its water over a number of miles from a source well outside of the city. And by the time it got to the city, it was lukewarm and full of minerals that made it taste and smell gross. Archaeologists have confirmed this by observing all of the sediment buildup in the ruined aqueducts. The water was essentially good for nothing. It was so terrible to drink and so terrible to cook with, it was useless. It didn't provide refreshment and it was worthless for providing healing. And so Jesus plays on this, and he says, right now, your church is good for nothing. 
You have given up the gospel that brings refreshment, and you have given up the gospel that brings healing to the sick and broken. And you have become satisfied with whatever this version is of the gospel that you, you claim you're following. And it literally makes me want to puke. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 17. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He calls out the church the same way that he calls out the Pharisees. And I was reminded of this episode in the book of John, in the gospel of John, when Jesus heals a man who has been born blind. And this is what he says in John chapter 9, 39. It says this, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who did not see may see, that those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus calls out the hypocrisy in the Pharisees, and he calls out the hypocrisy in the church at Laodicea. He says, you think you are rich, you think you need nothing, but you are wretched, pitiable, poor, and naked. And in the ancient Near East, the most humiliating and shameful thing that you could be was naked. This is a metaphor that is used all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. And Jesus says to the church, you have put your hope in these material things. You've put your hope in your self-sufficiency, but you should be ashamed. The church at Laodicea had given up its prophetic voice in exchange for material wealth, prosperity, and comfort. Is there any way that this rebuke rings true for Mission Fellowship? Is there any way that this rebuke rings true for you personally? It's very easy, especially in this holiday season, to get going through the motions and to forget where our hope actually lies. It's easy to seek our own comfort and ease. It's easy to sacrifice our prophetic voice in our relationships with our friends and our family because it's more comfortable not to engage them. To be the cool water that brings refreshment to the weary and the sick, we have to be involved in their lives. To be the hot water that brings healing and restoration to the sick and broken, we have to be zealous for the gospel. Amen. Where have we grown lukewarm in our commitment to Christ and his gospel? Where have we sacrificed obedience to the gospel for personal gain or comfort? Friends, brothers and sisters, may we keep the heart of the gospel alive in us through a passionate study of God's word. And may we keep the cool refreshment of the gospel alive in us as we engage in meaningful relationships with one another. Amen. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of my time. 
looking at the exhortation to the church at Laodicea. And so the next point is the exhortation. Buy from me, Christ, what only I can give you. Buy from me, Christ, what only I can give you. You see, Jesus offers a stinging rebuke. But he doesn't just tell the church, well, you guys make me sick, figure it out, good luck. No, he lovingly tells them what they need to do. This is verse 18. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In the ESV, Jesus is emphatic here. His emphasis is on the fact that these things can only be obtained through him. He says, get gold from me that has been refined by fire so that you may be rich. And this is an incredibly ironic statement because the Laodiceans were rich. They were filthy rich. They were the banking hub of that area of the world because of their location at the crossroads. They were so rich, in fact, that the city was destroyed by a major earthquake and they paid cash for the rebuild. But Jesus had told them they are poor and they need to get the gold that can only come from Christ. And when we see Jesus draw in this imagery of gold, we are again drawn to the images and pictures of Christ. The man in linen arrayed in gold with eyes like fire. And when we hear about it being refined in fire, we're drawn back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel's friends are cast into the fiery furnace because of their steadfast loyalty to Yahweh alone. You see, Jesus isn't actually talking about gold, literally. He's talking about a faith in himself that has withstood the trials and tribulations of this life. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can I get a hearty amen from those of you who have lived this verse at all in the past months? The trials of various kinds is the part that always cracks me up. For me, a couple weeks ago, it was my wife getting sick, and then the various kinds came in in the form of my bathtub, getting backed up with all the sludge from my garbage disposal. I would have loved to have blamed Sarah for the drain plugging, but as it says in Scripture, remove not the eyelash from your wife's drain until you snake the hairball out of yours. You see, I joke about trials, but what I should be doing, right, is rejoicing. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we celebrate when bad things happen to us or that we don't feel sad that people we love are sick and hurting. But I'm saying we should give thanks in the midst that we have hope for a new day 
We should rejoice in this life that all of its troubles are temporary. You see, Christ's goal for his people is not comfort or wealth or health or wisdom. Rather, it is a complete trust and hope in him alone that allows us to not be moved by the trials of this world. And I often wonder in my own life if I pull the gold out of the fire before all of the dross is burned away. I do almost everything possible to avoid suffering and discomfort. As anyone who has gone camping with me can attest. We have perverted the theology of suffering to the point where we think if it's not super easy, if it makes me uncomfortable, if it's painful at times, then it's clearly against God's will. And I wonder with you, brothers and sisters, how much more pure our faith would be if we spent the same amount of time and energy leaning into the trials and tribulations and rejoicing that they are opportunities to witness God's faithfulness firsthand rather than spending time and energy trying to avoid and prevent discomfort. We spend so much time protecting our comfort and our material possessions that we verge on what the Bible warns us not to do, which is stifling the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. My prayer for mission as we go into this new year is that we would be a church that would spend even more time relying on the sufficiency of Christ and his grace and even less time worrying about our comfort. And Jesus goes on in Revelation to urge the church to get white garments to clothe themselves, to hide the shame of their nakedness, and salve to heal their eyes. This metaphor has already been used multiple times in Revelation. But again, it calls our mind to Daniel chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 1 where we see Jesus clothed in white. It is a symbol for God's righteousness and the symbolism here works perfectly. There is nothing we can do in ourselves to hide the shame of our sinfulness. Every single person has sinned against God. And because of that, like Hans has talked about previously, we deserve exclusion from the presence of God. We deserve to remain naked and ashamed. But glory be to God alone, because in his mercy, he dwelt among us. He was born into our world and lived as we do and remained steadfast and faithful, perfect, holy, and righteous. And we celebrate his incarnation, his bodily arrival as a tiny baby at Christmas. But he didn't just live he died on our behalf to cover our shame permanently. It is his blood that makes us white as snow. It is by his stripes that we have been healed. And it is by his victory over our enemies, over sin and death, that we can conquer. Jesus rose from the grave victorious and then ascended to his place of authority. And now he invites each one of us to join him. He invites us to clothe ourselves in his righteousness. He promises never to leave us or forsake us because he has made a way for us. It is his righteousness alone that we put on. 
It is his righteousness that covers our nakedness and our shame. And when we baptize brothers and sisters into this church, we are picturing that death to our old selves, the burying beneath the water of our sin and our nakedness, and then the rising of the new self up out of the water, cleansed by the coolness of the gospel, healed by the heat of the gospel, and we're risen wearing Christ's righteousness. And if you have not accepted Jesus' righteousness as your own, if you are still walking in guilt and shame, but you want to be part of Jesus' kingdom, if you want to put on Jesus, as it were, if you're ready to be obedient, to be baptized into membership at this church, please speak with one of the pastors here. Speak with one of the members here. This is an open invitation. Now, what does this look like for us here practically? It's really easy to think about the symbolism and get lost in it and forget what the practical implications are. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 14. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. And it says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here's what Paul is saying in this letter. He's saying, if you have accepted Jesus, here's what it looks like. And my encouragement to you this week is to look back at this list and ask yourself this question. Have I put on Christ? Have I put on Christ? The church at Laodicea had received the gospel, and yet they were still naked. They had not put on Christ's righteousness. And are, are there things in this list that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction in? And are there things in this list that you can look at and you can give thanks to the Lord for the work that he has done in transforming you? Have I put on Christ? Jesus has a hard word for the church at Laodicea. And maybe so far this word is convicting for you as well. He tells them they are poor and naked. And he says, get the gold and righteous clothing that can only come from me. So the question is, if I am poor and naked, how can I obtain these things? I don't have any money. I can't buy this. This is the beauty of Christ and the sufficiency of his grace. There is nothing we can do to earn these things. In speaking to the Laodiceans this way, Jesus is again calling our minds back to Isaiah, where the Lord speaks of himself. In Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, it says this, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love 
for David. Jesus says, come, take all of my good gifts for free. Yahweh calls his people to enjoy his goodness, not because of what they do, but because of who he is, because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. The mistake that we often make is to say to ourselves, well, I'm just going to do better. And then we expect it to work. If it were as simple and as easy as that, we'd all be a lot more like Christ. But the reality is that all of the righteousness in us comes from outside of us. We grow in these areas not when we try to control them, but when we release control of them. When we become less self-reliant and more reliant on the Holy Spirit working in us and through God's Word and through other believers, we put on Christ more and more. Now, because of the corrupting influence of sin in my life, I'm not naturally compassionate or kind or humble. But because of the regenerating work of the Spirit working in me through the members of this church, I am growing to be more like Christ. When we pledge our allegiance to Christ as our King, we're saying that we'll allow Him to refine us in the fire, to be more like Him. Sisters, brothers, if we're not growing more like Christ, however incrementally, He is not our King. Back in Revelation 3.19, Jesus continues with this exhortation. Verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus lets the church know that indeed, even though their lack of zeal for the gospel is making him sick, he still loves them like children. Jesus alludes to Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, which the author of Hebrews also picks up in Hebrews chapter 12. And here's what it says in Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. It says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons." The text here reminds us that we should be expecting discipline if we are part of the family. And we intuitively know that this is true. We know that our love for our children is strong when we call our kids out of their sinful behaviors and point them to God's love. You see, Jesus doesn't just save us. He invites us to be part of his family and ultimately to spend eternity ruling and reigning with him. If we avoid his discipline, we prove that we are not part of his family. Jesus then tells the church again what they need to do. And it's the title of the sermon. They need to be zealous and repent. And this is the challenge to that church. Because from their perspective, the Laodiceans didn't think there was anything to repent for. Remember, they had grown lukewarm. 
They had given up the prophetic voice of the gospel for the voice of comfort. But Jesus, in his discipline, in his loving kindness, in his long suffering, he calls them back with a simple call. Repent. This is one of those things that is simple, but not easy. Repentance requires us to admit our faults to God and to one another. In my prayer for mission as we go into the new year is that we spend even more time admitting our faults to God and to one another and asking for forgiveness and even less time avoiding God's discipline. Jesus goes on in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus again points us to his unfailing grace. Even though he had delivered a hard word to the church, he shows here that his desire is to be with them. He wants renewed fellowship with them. I'm at the door knocking, he says. Let me in. This calls to mind the parable that Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 35 through 48. Luke 12, 35 through 48. It says this, starting in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them a portion of the food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing, so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and will put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You can see the parallels there between what Jesus says in Revelation and the parable he told. And he tells this parable to his disciples right after he tells them 
that his father will give them the kingdom so they shouldn't be worried about earthly possessions. The point of the parable is about the servants obeying and being loyal to their master. Often we use Revelation 3 as an evangelistic call to non-believers. We say things like, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Let him in. Now, in a sense, this is true. Jesus does desire that all people be saved, and he gives each of us an opportunity to respond to that call. But this passage is not really about individual evangelism. If we remember the context of Revelation, we remember that the letters were written to churches, not to the unbelieving world. And they weren't written to individual Christians. These were groups of people that had professed Christ and were, at least at one time, following him. And in the parable in Luke, the master of the house is not traveling to far off, some far-off city and knocking on a random door. He has returned home and is knocking on the door of his own house. And unfortunately, what had happened in Laodicea is that the church, which was supposed to be the dwelling place of the Spirit, God's earthly home, had grown lukewarm. They had closed the door. They had lost their zeal for the gospel and had concerned themselves with worldly things. They had become self-sufficient in their own eyes and in effect pushed Christ out of his own home. Their statements about who they thought they were or what they thought they had showed that they were existing not for Christ and his glory, but for their own comfort and interests. The church existed only to benefit the church, not to glorify Christ. And as one commentator put it, they loved the gifts more than the giver. Now what I'm about to offer, I offer with all the grace and humility I muster. Not as a complaint, but as a prophetic observation and a call for a renewed and continuing zeal in the gospel for the members of this church. I am concerned as one charged with keeping the watch over the souls of the members of this church when I see the fracturing of the church in this country that is centered on a Gnostic belief that my side has the truth and the other side is deceived. I've noticed lukewarmness grow when those inside the church sling pejoratives around and slap stereotypical caricatures on whole people groups so that people know who they are against and whose team they're on. And in the process, they sully the very name we should exist to glorify. And as a church in this country, we often give up our ability to heal and convict, to provide comfort and hope to the lost, because in our minds, association with those deemed other or a threat automatically means acquiescence and acceptance of their anti-gospel worldview. We quickly forget that Jesus himself was called a friend to tax collectors and sinners and frequently spent time with them, and yet he never endorsed, justified, or condoned their sin. Because of this exceptionalism that is hardwired into every American, I've noticed that we have a tendency to treat what are really inconveniences as persecution and every perceived injustice 
as an existential threat. And we forget that Jesus promised that in this life we would have trials. We quickly forget that Jesus promised not even the gates of hell would prevail against the church. And so the logical conclusion, no persecution can be existential to the church. I'm not discounting that there may be a time when we are persecuted, but we should give glory to Christ when that time comes that we will experience the joy of having our faith refined in the fire and it will produce in us something more precious than gold. I worry that the church in America is in fact engaging in a tragic form of escapism both from the world and from itself neglecting the call we have as ambassadors of the kingdom. As Paul said in Romans 10, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Paul is talking about people inside the community of faith not responding to the good news and in turn not sharing the good news of the gospel with those outside the community. I feel a tepidness creeping into the church in our country. Folks inside the church are quick to espouse all sorts of opinions. Zeal for political influence and societal comfort are masquerading around as zeal for the gospel. But do not be deceived, they are not the same thing. Just because it is loud and keeps repeating itself does not make it true. Jesus, our meek and humble shepherd, knocks gently and calls us to repentance and fellowship with himself. We as members of this church must work fervently to make sure none of what I just described describes mission fellowship. Because if it does, our prophetic witness will be lost. We will not be hot. We will not be cold. Jesus will spit us out. So that's great for me to point out to everyone, right? It feels heavy. But glory be to Christ that he has equipped us to defend against this. Repent and be zealous for the gospel. It is in our very mission statement here at this church that we teach, we equip, and we send. If you are a member of this church, you have met with the elders and you have been affirmed into this community by a vote of the other members that you have evidence of the Holy Spirit's regenerating work in your life. That you have been baptized to proclaim your obedience to Jesus as your King. And as I will now remind you, each and every one of you that are members, know and can articulate the gospel. And each and every week, the pastors who are up here preaching we give you a refresher on what that gospel message is. 
It is woven into every sermon. So when we say teach, equip, and send, we don't mean just those members on special assignments or who volunteer in certain areas. We don't mean just the leadership. We literally mean that all of us members should be preaching the gospel in word and deed at all times. Now, if this feels weighty to you, let me assure you, you are not alone. It is indeed a cross that we all bear. But let me also encourage you how beautiful it is to see the good news being preached all over our community because many of you have not bought into the myth that escape is the answer. Many of you have not bought into the myth that comfort or influence or prosperity is better than the gospel. Many of you rely not on yourselves, but on the sufficiency of Christ and his grace. I see the gospel preached in our community groups. I hear about interactions with coworkers and neighbors that point them to the good news. I see repentance and a zeal for the gospel in this church, and it is growing. It is bubbling over and it is transforming how we organize our lives. It is transforming how we spend our time, how we steward our resources and our relationships. And to my earlier comments about the church escaping itself, I see the gospel preached here among the members, empowering members of this church to extend grace to one another, covering a multitude of offense and sins. That we may point the community around us to the gospel by the unity that we share only because of the gospel. Mission Fellowship, may we be zealous and repent. And may we grow in our love for God's word, his gospel, and for each other. My prayer for us is that we would spend even more time preaching the gospel and even more time going about our master's business and even less time buying into the myth that cultures teach us. The statement Jesus makes about knocking on the door is a statement of loyalty and obedience. May we be found loyal and obedient. Now, we know that this is about loyalty because Jesus goes on to talk about the reward that he's going to give the church. This is what it says in verse 21. Verse 21. Back in Revelation 3. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus promises fellowship and a share in his goodness for those who are loyal and obedient. But even more, Christ offers a seat with him on his throne for those who conquer. While the church at Laodicea does not receive a commendation like the other churches, it does receive the pinnacle of all the rewards. It's not just salvation. It's not just eternal life. It is a position of authority in God's kingdom. If we conquer, we will share in the authority with Jesus as our king. This brings back what Hans taught about last week, 
the authority of the local church. We see that the church has been given authority now, and that authority will be reflected in the new heavens and new earth. You see, when God created man, he designed and commanded that man would tend his home, the garden. The garden was God's dwelling place on earth. But when man sinned, everything got messed up. Adam and Eve even picture the wicked servants they hid from, and they didn't answer God when he called. So God cast them out of his home. Adam and Eve, in their shame and nakedness, chose to follow their impulses instead of choosing loyalty, obedience, and fellowship with God. But God didn't leave humanity without hope. He chose a people for his own and led them out of exile himself, back to a promised land where his spirit lived in the temple. But again, God's servants acted faithlessly, and again, God allowed them to be taken out of the promised land by their enemies. But God is long-suffering. He is gracious and merciful. His love for humanity is exceedingly great. And so finally, he sent himself, his very essence in human form, Emmanuel, God with us. He sent Jesus to be a servant for all mankind, that we might have a perfect example of loyalty, obedience, and fellowship with God. And I know we don't have time this morning, so I'm just going to mention it here, but this whole letter to Laodicea is dripping with allusions from Isaiah 49 through 55. Isaiah 49 through 55. I would highly recommend reading that section of text some point this week. And I want to highlight a couple of short verses here as we button up the teaching this morning. This is from Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be, to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, who is this talking about? Caleb, my man. Jesus, of course. Jesus is the servant who acts wisely. And because of the suffering Jesus endured, we can be counted righteous. Because of Jesus' service and obedience, he gets a portion with the many. That is us, those who are obedient and serve him. And remember what it says. He will divide the spoil with the strong. This is talking about strength like fortitude. The ability by the Spirit to press on and endure the refiner's fire. If we suffer with Christ and endure, we will sit on his throne with him. Jesus resets what was broken and is the perfect servant and has now left his spirit with us in his earthly home, the church, to exercise authority and to go about the master's business until he returns to get us, when we will rule and reign with him. 
This is the good news of the gospel. That's twice now I've given it to you, explicitly. The good news of the gospel. That Christ has taken what we have broken and restored it through the cross. And eventually, will make it perfect again. What a joyous piece of news as we go through this holiday season. That our King will reward the faithful. He will reward our endurance with a gift far greater than anything we'll find under the tree. A place of intimate fellowship with him, next to him on the throne for all of eternity. Mission Fellowship, you are called to be servants of the Most High God. As we engage in the Master's business, joyfully and hopefully expecting his return, may we never lose our zeal. May we be quick to repent And may we be joyfully anticipating intimate fellowship with our King when he comes back. May those who have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning.